Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch, He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his white, his teeth whiter than milk. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Take a moment to pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here in these physical and digital spaces this morning. Give us your Holy Spirit to illumine this, the very word of God, to us. Lord, speak to us here this morning. We need a word from you, and thank you that Jesus is the word of God, made flesh who dwelt among us, lived with us, died for us, rose again in glory, and welcomes us by grace. Father, we, whether we come here this morning from near or far in relation to you, draw us closer. Would we know and worship Jesus and be agents of peace in your world? We pray, Jesus, in your name and for your sake. Amen. You may be seated. If you were here or watching last week, I mentioned that I am just recently back from a mini sabbatical that was granted to me for most of November, and I spent the beginning of my middle sabbatic of my mini sabbatical in the city of New Orleans, where I'm from. And as part of all that mini sabbatical fun, I went back and read I think the only fiction book that I've now read three times, the only fiction book that I've reread twice, *A Confederacy of Dunces* by John Kennedy Toole. Show of hands, has anybody read Confederacy of Dunces? Okay, a few people, very good. You are now my favorite people for the rest of the service, but I like the rest of you as well. It was a book written in the 1960s by this guy named John Kennedy Toole. Toole was very frustrated that he couldn't find a publisher, and in large part, that was what drove him to take his own life at the end of the 1960s. The book was published posthumously in 1980 and became a huge hit. It won the Pulitzer Prize. It's a book set in New Orleans. It's a comic book. You don't, well, it's a comic novel, not like with pictures, but it's a comical book where it's episode after episode showcasing New Orleans and all of the zany craziness there. And the main character in Confederacy of Dunces is this classic comic fictional figure named Ignatius J. Riley who was played recently by Nick Offerman, if you know him. He was Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec. You can Google Ignatius, or on YouTube, Ignatius Riley, Nick Offerman, to see him play. They have a couple of clips from the stage performance. Ignatius Riley is a wonderful character. He is huge in every way. He's huge, huge physically, a corpulent mountain of a man. 
Ignatius Riley is hugely overeducated. He is hugely underemployed. He is hugely slovenly. He is hugely pompous. And he is hugely against everything. He always gets in such an angry froth about everything wrong in the modern world. And he's so angsty, it's comical. And over the course of the novel, Ignatius against everything takes on this tragicomic nobility, sort of like a Don Quixote figure, tilting, fulminating against the windmills of modernity. And one of the minor running jokes throughout Confederacy of Dunces is, where is Ignatius Riley politically? Because he's against everything. At one point in the novel, he speaks against the Republicans. Then he speaks against the Democrats. Then he speaks against the fascists. Then he speaks against the communists. He's against everybody, which begs the question, Ignatius, where are you with, with some of these things? And there's a, again, this is not the main theme of the book, but there's this minor reveal towards the end where finally Ignatius J. Riley plays his cards about where he is in relation to such things. It goes like this. Here is the back and forth between him and his mom. Mrs. Raleigh looked at her son slyly and asked, and I am from New Orleans. I can't do a New Orleans accent. It's a work of beauty that's beyond me. Ironic. And slyly asked, Ignatius, you sure you're not a communist? Oh, no, Ignatius bellowed. Every day I am subjected to a McCarthyite witch hunt in this crumbling home. No, I told you before, I am not a fellow traveler. What in the world has put that into your head? What I want, and here he's saying what he wants politically, what I want is a good, strong monarchy with a tasteful and de a decent king who has some knowledge of theology and geometry and to cultivate a rich inner life. That's the punchline. Where are you politically? Ignatius, I want a divine right king with a rich inner life and a knowledge of theology and geometry. It's farcical. It's a joke because nobody wants a king, right? And for us here in 21st century America, we have ideas about kings in different ways, right? Kings are a novelty at best and harmful at worst. Novelty at best. A king every once in a while is good for a, a da 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 da, or it's good for, well, I don't know, a little bit of drama. The Crown is a very nice watch. It's a good show. But flip side of that coin, for the next coronation or British monarchical thing that's happening at 3 a.m. and you're throwing a party for it, feel free not to invite me because at the end of the day, I don't really get it. Novelty at best when it comes to monarchies. Harmful at worst. What does monarchy king kind of sound like in more modern terms? Dictator. Strongman. Do we want a dictator, strongman, king? No. But, and here's the rub. If you're here as a follower of Jesus, and you don't have a built-out positive category for king, there is a big part of the life and work of Jesus that you may not fully get. Specifically because 
king is one of the most prominent descriptors of who Jesus is in all of the Bible. Jesus is the messianic king. But do we have categories for that? Do we get it? Do we understand? Actually, maybe we might not. And my job as a Christian preacher and pastor is in part to fire your imagination, to fire your passion for the fact that Jesus is king. But the reality of the matter is, whether in biblical times or different cultures around the world in various periods that would say if you're in a group of people and somebody would plausibly proclaim to you, behold your king, and you'd go, yes, or huzzah, or something else like that. In our context, behold your king. You'd go, is this Halloween? Is this Mardi Gras? It's either a uh or uh-oh. Why are we suspicious of kings at a more serious level? Because we kind of like democracy. It's a pretty good thing. I think of the old aphorism attributed to Churchill, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others. And we know the equation of damage when it comes to power. In so many ways, I think, culturally speaking, we believe that people plus power equals harm. Right? People plus power equals harm, especially when the people narrows down to person and the power expands. That equals harm. But we're going there here this morning to talk about King Jesus. And it's good that Jesus is king. King Jesus is a good king. And it's good for us to bow our knee to exalt this King Jesus. So three quick parts from here as we think about King Jesus. We're going to talk about how King Jesus is promised to us by God. Then we're going to ask the question, do we really want a king after all? And then talk about why we need a king. So King Jesus, promised by God. Do we really want a king? And then why we need one. King Jesus, promised by God. And this is the second installment of our Advent sermon series. The plan all along, Messiah and Pentateuch where we're going through different Old Testament passages in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, that point forward one way or another to the Messiah King coming. And I didn't plan this aspect of it, but it's kind of cool that in traditional Christian theological circles, Jesus is often considered, according to his three roles or three offices, prophet, priest, and king. Wait for it. We're going to cover all of those offices throughout the course of these Advent sermons. This week and next week, Jesus is king. Then we're going to get Jesus as prophet. Then on church on Christmas Eve that Eric was just announcing about, we are going to get Jesus as priest, including from here this morning, from Genesis chapter 49. Kind of interesting. Unlike last week when we looked at Genesis chapter 3, especially verse 15, which even though I believe, and many, many Christians believe, is a messianic text that points forward to Jesus the Messiah. It wasn't originally believed that way in Jewish interpretive circles. For this passage here this morning, Genesis chapter 49, 8 through 12, was considered long before Jesus in the canons of Jewish interpretation. This is a messianic passage prophetically pointing to the king that is to come. And we're nearly at the end of the book of Genesis. 
Genesis chapter 49 is one chapter before the very end of the book. It ends with Genesis chapter 50. And so if the narrative spine of Genesis, and you may recognize some of these characters, especially if you've been here with us this fall, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the narrative spine of the book. By this point, we are done with Abraham. We are done with Isaac. We're mostly done with Jacob. Jacob's son Joseph has already gone down to Egypt, and the rest of the family has followed him down because of the famine. And here we are. As old Jacob gathers his 12 sons together, and that 12 is not random. Maybe you've heard of the 12 tribes of Israel. It goes all the way back originally to Jacob's 12 sons. Another name for Jacob is Israel. The 12 sons, 12 tribes gathered together, and Jacob pronounces a blessing upon all of them. But it's not just any type of blessing. It's a prophetic one. It's a blessing that prophetically sets the course, the destiny, the direction of each of these tribes. For example, at the very beginning of all of these different 12 blessings, Genesis 49.1 goes like this. Then Jacob called for his sons and said, gather around so I can tell you what will happen in the days to come. What will happen in the days to come? A very standard prophetic formula. And... The prophecy, the blessing given to one specific tribe, stands out over and against all the rest. It's our sermon text for this morning, verses 8 to 12. The prophetic blessing given to none other than Judah. Judah will have pride of place permanently among the tribes of Judah and in the world. Judah, from Judah will come the king. And Judah's role is to reign, and his status is high. Look with me, verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Your father's sons, your brothers, the other tribes, they will bow down to you, Judah. A lot of lion in verse 9. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness who dares to rouse him. And in ancient cultures, including the ancient Near East, including Israel here, pretty much around the world, it's kind of cool. Lions were always considered the kings of the, of the jungle, like royal and majestic, the, the biggest, baddest animal out there. Judah, you're not a peacock, you're not a tiger, you're not this or that. You are, and I don't know why I mentioned those two random animals out of any that I could have. That's, you know, the taxonomy of animals in my mind is huge. But. Specifically, Judah, you are a royal lion. Again, verse 10. We have scepter and tribute and obedience of the nations. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. Interesting here as well. End of verse 8. Judah has pride of place. All of the other tribes of Judah within the nation of Israel, Judah will be king. But then here, the one to come from Judah, everybody, the obedience of nations shall be his. So Judah's role is to reign, and his status is high. Verses 11 and 12, extravagant opulence. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. That might be obtuse to us, but it was accessible in the original context. Do you know what will happen if you're a vintner? If you grow wine grapes and make wine and you tie your donkey to really succulent-looking vines that have a ton of grapes on them, 
what's that donkey going to do? Dominic the donkey is going to go chomp, 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 chomp. But you're so rich. You have so much that it doesn't even matter. Just tie that donkey anywhere. If that donkey is going to eat a few grapes, it's all okay. Extravagant opulence. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. There is so much wine, you're swimming in it. You're even using it for laundry. I think in this case, if you know that, I think I mentioned this movie a little while ago, maybe in October, Three Amigos, the classic 80s comedy. If you know the scene where the Three Amigos are in the desert and Lucky Day and Ned Niederlander are parched for thirst and they have their canteens that only have sand in them at that point, but then Chevy Chase, who's Dusty Bottoms, he opens up his canteen. There's a ton of water so much that he just sprays it around his face and then throws the canteen on the ground and the water spills out where the other two guys are going, it's kind of like this, where there is so much of an overabundance of wine that it's just everywhere. It's spilling out. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk, up to the eyeballs and the good stuff. Judah, his role is to reign and his status is high. And from this moment, this is one of the primary constitutive passages that points forward that from Judah comes a king. And so from a passage like this, Jacob blessing Judah will arise King David. What tribe is David from? What do you know? He's from the tribe of Judah. And even when David was made king, it was already pointing forward to the messianic king to come. In the book of 2 Samuel, centuries after this, we read that God says to David through the prophet Nathan, it's going to be even better. In 2 Samuel 7, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. My steadfast love will not depart from him, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. From Judah comes David will come the final king, Jesus. And what do you know that one of the descriptors of Jesus of Nazareth at the very end of the Bible in the book of, Re of Revelation goes like this. Weep no more. Behold, speaking of Jesus here, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. All that is to say, King Jesus, promised by God, that to which this text, Genesis chapter 49, or even better, that to whom this text, Genesis 49, points, is fulfilled in none other than King Jesus of Nazareth, promised by God. But do we really want a king? How many of you have spent time up close with no cage or bars in between, with a lion? Probably not many of you. Do you know why? Lions are scary. And so are kings. So are individuals that have that much power. Do we really want a king after all? So much power, so much authority. The obedience of nations, verse 10 in Genesis 49, will come to him. Obedience due to this figure. We're not so sure. Do we really want a king? 
There's an authority problem there and an autonomy problem, if I can put it that way. Do we really want a king when it comes to authority? Because we are deeply, in our culture right now, deeply suspicious of people that wield power, right? And I get it. I get it. From headlines to very personal and hurtful, harmful examples in our own lives, we feel the weight of that equation of damage, people plus power equals harm. And so, whether it's politicians, whether it's bosses, whether it's celebrities, whether it's athletes, and those conversations are stirring up again in the sports world as Deshaun Watson suits up for the Cleveland Browns today. There's a lot of conversations going on around that right now again. And also pastors, also church leaders, abusing power in many ways. And I'll interject this personally at this point. I think I'm going to be a pastor forever. I'm not planning on switching careers, and I want to do ministry in the local church until I can't do it anymore. But one of the things that potentially, and I don't think this is going to happen, that, that could cause me to switch out would be so many headlines and so many stories over and over again of pastoral abuses. And if you're here as a member at Liberty Church Collingswood, if you're in covenant with us, one of your membership vows is that you vow to accept the spiritual guidance of this church, which in part accords a measure of spiritual authority to me and the other leaders. Lord, may it never be the case that down the road I will feel the weight of so many negative stories and headlines that I can't anymore in good conscience ask of other people to accord that spiritual authority anymore. I get it. And I'm concerned. But here's the flip side. When it comes to power and authority, it's unavoidable to give authority to someone or somebody. You can't avoid it. Even if you're here this morning as somebody that's still working out or piecing together spiritual realities in different ways, you ascribe authority one way or another to something anyway. It might not be a political figure, it might not be a president, it might not be a king, but maybe it's a group of people, maybe it's a thought leader, maybe it's an influencer, maybe it's a, it's a group of people where you say, that community is right, and I want to align with them, I really, really need to. So a better way of broaching the authority question is not if authority, but what authority? Because we all give it somewhere. And it's the case, too, that if we're just going to live our lives suspicious of any and every authority in every context, we are going to become miserable people that are pessimistic all the time. It kind of looks like where we are, culturally speaking, right now anyway. David Foster Wallace died a few years ago, writer of both fiction and nonfiction, said this before he died, and it hasn't gotten better. What's been passed down from the postmodern heyday to today is sarcasm, cynicism, suspicion of all authority, suspicion of all constraints on conduct, a terrible penchant for ironic diagnosis of unpleasantness instead of an ambition not just to diagnose and to ridicule, but to redeem. Which is to say, if we're suspicious of any and all authority and constraints and say, I'm just going to be free all the time 
That just makes us pessimistic, miserable people that are always poking holes in everybody else, but never building, never constructing, never doing something positive, never growing. Who is your authority? Where does it come from? So there's an authority problem, but there's also an autonomy problem. And they're, they're distinct, but also related. Think about little kids, little Roger or little Monique. Hey, share your toy. No. Hey, finish your dinner. No. Hey, brush your teeth and go to bed. No. I don't want to. We don't like being told what to do, right? None of us do. And it's not just the little kids. It's not in our nature to do that. So when we think about king authority over us, there's this good old-fashioned part of who we are deep down that's just kind of like, nah, that's not for me. I'd prefer to be my own king. Mark Sayers is a pastor and author in Australia. I tune into a lot of his stuff. He put it this way. The average Westerner is a radical individualist who is deeply afraid of compromising their autonomy. That's one of the big fears of the moment, right? If I give any of my sovereign autonomy to anybody else, I'm not being the free person that I need to be in this moment. But it's not that simple. And you might come back to me here and say, well, Jim, what's really going on is, yeah, I, I do give some authority to thinkers, influencers, groups. Yeah, that just kind of happens. But at the end of the day, I'm my own authority. I make my own decisions. I don't give it away to anybody. I keep it for myself. But that's also a little bit problematic because there's a hidden arrogance there. Some of you know this already. I grew up reading comic books about Captain America. Cap was always my guy. So when Captain America in the early phases of the MCU came to the big screen, Every day was Christmas because Captain America was awesome. I love how Captain America was portrayed on the screen, except for this one line in Captain America Civil War. I'll try to summarize this as quickly as possible. So there, there's the Sokovia Accords where there is an international governmental organization that wants to impose strictures and standards upon the Avengers, the team that Cap leads, such that the Avengers only go in and do stuff when this agency says you can so the Avengers start working for this other agency. And there is a division, a civil war, if you will, between Team Iron Man that says, yeah, this is a good idea, and Cap that says, no, this is a bad idea. And ideologically on this one, when I think about the Avengers in this context, I am Team Cap. I don't want them working for a corrupt government agency. But Cap says one thing that has always rung false to me. There are plenty of reasons to be Team Cap and not go along with the Sokovia Accords but I don't like this reason that Cap gave. He said, the safest hands are still our own. I'm like, Cap, I've, I've, it's ride or die with you for a lot of years. But if I were writing this screenplay for this movie, Cap would not have said that because he would have known that it's an arrogant comment. The safest hands are still our own. The chief and primary accountability and check on power that I need is my own? Our own? That's crazy. That goes in the direction of that equation of damage. People plus power equals harm. So even if we say, I'm just going to do it all myself and be my own authority, are we really better off? Or is it just hubris? And now third and finally, but Jesus really is the king that we need 
because it's Jesus and Jesus alone that blows up that equation of power. People plus power equals harm for everybody else because in the words, in the language of the scriptures, we're all sinners. We all mess up. We all use power the wrong way. But what if there is one who is holy good and holy gracious? Holy good and holy gracious. And if that one is the one who is the potentate, the one with all the power, that rule, that reign is not evil and harmful and damaging. That rule is good. And that's why we need King Jesus. So for example, if you have political fatigue, when leader after leader, party after party, and we should have political opinions, and there is a variety of political opinions here at Liberty Collingswood, we should continue to hold them and dialogue and think and pursue, all that's good and healthy. But if we have fatigue that like, even the ones that we thought were the good guys, whoever the good guys are, are letting us down, Jesus is the one that won't because he is the one that uses all of his power to serve and to share. The Apostle Paul talks about Jesus in this way from Philippians. Uh, some of you know this passage. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Power through service and sharing. A couple years ago here at Liberty Collins, we, we read a book by a guy named Rusty George about community. He said this at this point about Jesus. This teaches us something about the servant mentality of Jesus. He's willing to empower those who are not worthy of his power. Jesus is the powerful king that empowers, that shares. And he also shares with us forgiveness because he paid the penalty for our sin on the cross and rose again to conquer it. So we can trust him fully. He is the Lion of Judah that we can get next to because he is good all the way through. And if you might also have the thought, there should be no king, no power, no authority over me. I would say in a context like ours, chances are that take is baked in with a little bit of privilege. Martin Luther King said this in one of his speeches, the one, where do we go from here? Talking about power in a different way, for example. When our days become dreary with low hovering clouds of despair, and when our nights become darker than a thousand midnights, let us remember that there is a creative force in this universe, God, working to pull down the gigantic mountains of evil, a power that is able to make a way out of no way and transform dark yesterdays into bright tomorrows. Dr. King isn't there saying, well, let's not talk about power. It makes people nervous. It's like, we're a people that lack power, and we need a God. We need a king that is all-powerful. And this Jesus is resurrected. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, Paul goes on to say, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we're called to bow. And when Eric Mitchell preaches next week from a different passage in the Pentateuch, we'll return to some of these themes about King Jesus again. But let me just throw out and then we'll end. What is blocking you from being a more obedient subject of King Jesus? What practical step can you take 
to become a more loyal and joyful subject of King Jesus. And in this Advent season, how can you better reflect the service, the sharing, the justice, the generosity of King Jesus? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later. Thank you.